welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. Good morning, church. It really is a joy to be here with you. Um, Several faces that have been uh, people we've been gone for a while. I'm so glad to see them here today. Welcome. Um, If you would, please turn with me to Genesis 2, Genesis chapter 2. And as you turn, I just want to say that it is a joy to to hear the babies crying during the singing and just uh, even all the wiggles that my, my son and my daughters have down here in the front. I just... I want to just remember that that is a privilege. It is a privilege for us to have a church as kids running around everywhere, and that is a gift from God. And I, I just want to thank Him for that before we begin. Um, over the past few weeks, we have studied the first seven days of history. In the first six days, God formed and filled the world, and on the seventh day, God rested. Ultimately, the author of Genesis wants his readers to grasp that a good God formed and filled a good world with the goal of bringing man into perfect relationship, all because this is good in God's sight. Though man rebels against the design and breaks the perfection of this relationship, God does not give up on man. Instead, we see throughout the story of redemption that God begins working to ultimately redeem a remnant of mankind. There are several redemptive themes that find their foundation in Genesis. So far, we've looked at the unity of God as Father, Son, and Spirit. Then God as the good and sovereign creator. And also we studied man as made in the image of God. And last week, we rejoiced in the ultimate rest that God Will accomplish for his people all of these things we studied even just in the first few verses of the Bible. This morning, as we walk through Genesis 2, verses 4 through 17, my hope is that we will all taste and see that the Lord is good. This theme is repeated from Genesis to Revelation and is one of the primary images calling humanity to find true life in God. Even Adam and Eve in paradise before sin had to taste and see that the Lord is good if they wanted to have life. With this in mind, let's read Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 17 together. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed." And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. 
The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the, Euphra- is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, asking Him to bless this time together around His Word. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. I thank You that it is wisdom I thank you that I do not have to rely on my own wisdom or the wisdom of other men and women, but instead that I can look into your word and see what is truth, see what is life. I pray, Father, that no one sitting here today would would come in and then leave with a hardened heart towards your word, but instead that as we look together at what you say in your word, at your goodness, at your redemption, I pray that as we do that, that hearts will be softened and that we will all taste and see that you are good and that that would inspire joy and love so that we can go out and obey you as our God. Would you do this for your glory and for our good? In Jesus' name, amen. So Moses writes this description of the pre-fall world for several reasons. It is a historical account of man's beginnings, a description of paradise that has been lost, and possibly a hint to the original location of Eden. But the primary emphasis of this passage seems to be placed on the goodness of God toward man in the garden. And for that reason, we will focus our attention on this aspect of Genesis chapter 2. Verse 4 begins with the phrase, these are the generations of, which could also be translated, this is the account of or the history of. This phrase is common in Genesis and is used to identify a break in thought or a change in direction in the narrative. And we will see this phrase repeatedly throughout Genesis. So verse 4 is serving as a transitional paragraph. It points to a break in the narrative. And this helps us make sense of verse 5. Because the rest of chapter 2 goes back to day 6 and describes the the specifics of that day. This is not another day or a second period of creation as some have suggested. Genesis 1 was a logical progression of seven days looking at creation like from a distance, from an aerial view. But now in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, we zoom in to focus on the pinnacle of God's creation, the creation of man on day 6. These verses in Genesis 2 are designed to show the goodness of God toward man in the garden. As you move on to verses 5 and 6, they seem a bit strange. There are no bushes or small plants in the field. There was no rain yet. No man was working in the ground. And there was a mist coming up from the ground that waters the earth. This description does sound a bit strange, especially if you think back to day three and realize that trees and vegetation were already created by God. But to answer this question, most commentators point out that Moses is using slightly different language here in chapter two than he did on day three. Here, Moses seems to be emphasizing the unique conditions 
on the earth before the fall. So let's look at his wording together. He says there's no bush of the field, which bush of the field translates a Hebrew word for plants that do not produce fruit and that often produce thorns. Small plants of the field seem to be describing the edible plants that would only thrive with cultivation like wheat or barley. And the mist going up from the ground is the Hebrew word ed, which is debated but should most likely be translated or understood to be a spring or a stream that's coming up out of the earth. With these definitions in mind, we begin to see the picture Moses is describing more clearly. He is saying before thorns and thistles, before cultivation, before rain, and before man worked the ground, this was the condition of the earth on day six. He says there was fresh water that came up out of the earth and watered all the trees and plants that God made on the, on the third day. I believe this would be the most accurate understanding of what Moses is getting at. Then in verse 7, the attention and care of God is emphasized as He comes down and fashions man. The word formed is often used to describe a potter who is molding clay. And the picture being described is God reaching His hands into the dirt and the clay in order to fashion the pinnacle of His creation. The beings that would be body and soul made in the image of God. God then takes the man, this man of dust, the dirt, and breathes the breath of life into him. God breathes out his life-giving breath, and man, with his first breath, breathes in his God's life, becoming a living creature. As Paul says in Acts 27, verse 25, God gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Now we realize that God is spirit and that he does not have that he did not have a permanent body with hands or lungs, but this is the image that God wants us to see and savor when we think about his love and care for man in creation and specifically the creation of mankind. Verses 8 and 9 go on to tell us about the home that God prepares for man. We are told there is a region called Eden. And within the region of Eden, God plants a garden. So Eden is not the name of the garden. It is the garden in the region of Eden. God then places man in the garden. And in this garden, God grows every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Also, in the center of this garden, God plants two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We are told in verses 10 through 14 that fresh water came up out of the ground in Eden and flowed down into all the surrounding country to provide water for the earth. This could possibly be referring back to verse 6, where we are told that a spring was coming up out of the ground and watering the earth. Now in verses 10 through 14, we see that a single source of water flows out of Eden and the garden, watering the entire region. Also in the land were precious metals and gems for beauty. God is the one who gave man gold, silver, and gems. These were intended for man, for beauty, to please the eyes and thrill the senses. 
Moses, Moses is describing a beautiful, lush land that is good. Now Moses may have written verses 10 through 14 to give the Israelites an idea of where Eden was located, possibly in Mesopotamia in the east. But your time, I believe, would be wasted trying to discover the exact location of Eden from these descriptions as so many have tried to do. Because this is what Eden looked like before the flood. And it is unlikely that anything described here in Genesis 2 is still recognizable today. So going back to the text, what we have seen thus far is this elevated region called Eden. We know it's elevated because all the water flowed out away from it. It's the one source of water that then the rivers, the one river flowed out and then separated into four other rivers. So we have this elevated region called Eden within a, with, a, with a garden planted in it with every beautiful and edible tree. And through this garden out into the surrounding lowlands, there is fresh water and precious metals. And then in verse 15, we read that the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work and keep it. Moses is describing paradise. This is his point. This was paradise. There was food, the fruit of the trees. There was water that consistently flowed from the garden itself without fail. There was no times of drought There was beauty, the trees, the rivers, the lush greenery, and the precious metals and gems. There was purpose. God gave Adam good, satisfying work to do in working and keeping the garden while ruling over creation. There was also perfect relationship. As we'll see later, God walks and speaks with man in the garden. Man is then given the perfect companion woman. And animals are in submission to Adam and Eve's rule. This is paradise. And God wants Adam and Eve to taste and see that He is good. As they live, love, laugh, and work in the conditions of paradise. But there is one other essential condition to mankind living in paradise. Look at verses 16 through 17 with me. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. These verses describe an essential condition necessary for man to live in paradise. Man must possess the fear of the Lord. I realize that most people shrink back from the idea of fear existing in paradise before the fall. I understand that reaction because it comes from a healthy understanding of the perfect conditions before the fall. But may I suggest that it also comes from an unhealthy or inadequate understanding of the meaning of the fear of the Lord. Most people automatically think of fear as terror or worry or most accurately doubt that God is, is, is good enough. Doubt that God isn't sufficient or, or powerful enough, sovereign enough or loving enough to take care of me. 
Fear is often described as the terror that causes us to run and hide or run away or to disobey. This is an accurate definition of fear, and even the scriptures use the word fear this way, but this does not describe the fear of the Lord. Instead, the fear of the Lord is reverence and awe which result in obedience. Reverence and awe which result in obedience. This is the consistent way the scriptures define the fear of the Lord. And the scriptures speak as if this reverence and awe come from tasting and seeing for yourself that the Lord is good. People taste and see the goodness of God. This fills them with reverential awe of Him. And for that reason, they go out and obey Him. Okay, so I've made some significant claims. First, the fear of the Lord is a good thing. Second, the fear of the Lord was required of Adam and Eve in paradise. So those are kind of tied together because I'm claiming that it is such a good thing that was there before sin. Third, I claim that the fear of the Lord is defined as reverence and awe that result in obedience. And fourth, I claimed that reverence and awe come from tasting and seeing the goodness of God yourself. Let's see if these claims hold scriptural weight. First, we know that the fear of the Lord is a good thing because Psalm 147 verse 11 says that the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him. And Psalm 111 verse 10 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. Since God is the one who defines what is good, we trust Him when He says that to fear Him is good and right. Second, we know that the fear of the Lord was required of Adam and Eve in the garden because in Genesis 2 verse 17 as we've read, God tells Adam in paradise before the, before the fall, before sin, that if Adam does not obey Him, then Adam will die. Adam needed to exercise reverence and awe for the God who holds life itself in his hands if Adam wanted to keep on living. Irreverence would lead to disobedience and death. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was not a weed that Satan planted in the garden to tempt mankind. No, this This was a tree that God planted with a specific purpose. The purpose that man would have the opportunity to exercise the fear of the Lord, which is a necessary component for man's ultimate joy and happiness. Third, we know that the fear of the Lord is defined as reverence and awe that results in obedience because... In Jeremiah 32, verse 40, we see God's promise that in the church age, He is going to change His people's hearts so that they will obey Him. In the Old Testament, we see again and again that the people of Israel had a rock-hard rock heart. 
It was a heart of stone. And they could not taste and see the goodness of God as a people, as a whole. And God is saying that after my son comes and after the spirit comes to dwell in my people, I'm going to change their hearts. He says in Jeremiah 32, God prophesies of the future saying, I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. The fear of the Lord doesn't cause us to run away from God. Instead, this godly fear drives us to run to Him and obey Him. Also, another passage in Genesis 22, verse 12, Abraham reveals his reverence and awe for God when he obeys God, even though God had asked Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. God ultimately stops Abraham from killing Isaac, giving this reason. This is why God stops Abraham. He says, for now I know that you fear God. So God is saying, I see in your actions that you fear me. Seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. I see you fear me because you obeyed me. The fear of of God or the fear of the Lord is a reverential awe for Him, a love for Him that results in obedience. It is not the terror that causes you to run from God and hide. The fear of the Lord always results in obedience if you're exercising it. Fourth, and finally, reverence and awe come from tasting and seeing the goodness of God. This may be difficult to grasp at first, but I believe this is really important. This is essential for your joy as a Christian. So please stay with me as we think about this. Think back to Psalm 147, verse 11. The psalmist says, The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him, in those who hope in His steadfast love. The psalmist is making a connection between the fear of the Lord and hope in God's steadfast love, hope in God's goodness. It's like the psalmist is saying, to fear the Lord is to hope in God's goodness. You have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, glorious, and worthy, and for this reason you fear Him, you obey Him, because of your reverence and awe of who He is. Maybe another passage will make this a little clearer. Psalm 34, verses 8 through 9 says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. O fear the Lord, you His saints, for those who fear Him have no lack. The psalmist here connects tasting and seeing that the Lord is good with the fear of the Lord. Because when the people of God see the goodness of God, then they are filled with reverence and awe, which then drives them to love the things he loves and to hate the things he hates. The author of Ecclesiastes concludes his book with these words. He has made all of these arguments about wisdom and what is good and what is right and what we should be doing. And he finishes his book with this with these words 
He says the end of, end of the matter. All has been heard. All these arguments have been made. I've, I've talked about everything under the sun. He says, but this is the end of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. The fear of the Lord is the foundational duty of man. Without the fear of God in our hearts, we will become rebels and we will reject Him. So we've just spent a couple minutes zoomed in on the fear of the Lord. But now let's back out with this better understanding and let's step back and think about how this truth fits into the historical account found in Genesis 2. We know that God creates paradise for man with food, water, beauty, purpose, a perfect relationship, and the opportunity for man to possess and exercise the fear of the Lord, which fits into that perfect relationship that we have with Him. If you, be, if you put... These things together, you begin to see the conditions of paradise. God wanted man to taste and see the goodness of God all around him. To recognize God as the giver of every good thing. And then every time Adam and Eve walked up to the tree of life to eat of the sustaining life that God provided, God wanted them to consciously and willfully walk past the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, saying in their hearts, that tree is death. We choose the life that God provides. This is the fear of the Lord. Reverence and awe before the goodness of God that results in obedience. And this, this was part of the conditions of paradise. We will later see that the reason Adam and Eve rebelled against God is because they failed to taste and see the goodness of God all around them, thus losing their awe and reverence for Him, which resulted in unbelief, disobedience, and death. But did Adam and Eve's sin make void the goodness of God? Praise God, it did not. The story of the Bible is a story where God provides food for His people, gives them water in the wilderness, trades their rags for riches, gives them purpose when they had none, entering into relationship with His people, even though they were undeserving, all the while calling mankind to taste and see that the Lord is good, that He is good, so that they would fear Him, obey Him, and find life in Him. And then at the appointed time, God sent His Son into the world to redeem His people, even from the power of sin and death that they were under. Because of the goodness of God will not be stopped. He will save His people. It is at this point that God begins to open the eyes of His people so that they can see that God's provision throughout human history was pointing toward a person, God the Son, Jesus Christ. 
This world with its food, drink, beauty, work, and relationships are not the things that bring ultimate life, that ultimately bring life. Even Adam and Eve in the garden were required to eat of the tree of life and drink from the river that came out of the ground as a constant reminder that God is the one who gives them life, who gave them life. And the Israelites in the wilderness ate the bread that fell from heaven, the manna, and drank the water that flowed from a rock in the wilderness as a reminder of the God who gave them life. And then the Son of God comes into the world proclaiming that those symbols, the shadows of life, point to Him as the one who is life. Jesus proclaimed to the crowds in John chapter 6. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus claims that he is the bread and the water of life. He is not another image or shadow of God's provision. He is the goodness of God in flesh dwelling with man. Jesus comes to humanity claiming that he is the one that all these images and shadows point to. He goes on in John 6 to say to the crowds, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. What are they supposed to believe? He says, I am the bread of life. Now he goes on to contrast something that wasn't life. He says, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. It was insufficient for eternal life, for for faith and holiness. It was insufficient. Break in thought in this passage and he goes on. He's going to say, this is the bread of life that comes from heaven so that one may eat it and not die. He's getting ready to tell us What is the bread of life that if you eat it, then you will not die? It's not the manna in the wilderness. He's saying it's something else. And he goes on to answer this statement. He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The people grumbled among themselves because this saying, because of this saying. So Jesus proclaims to them all in verse 53, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. This is the bread. Whoever feeds on this bread, he's talking about himself and his flesh, his body, and his blood, whoever feeds on this breath will, on this bread, will live forever. 
Maybe you're thinking in your heart exactly what the Jewish crowds were thinking. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Who can understand it and believe this? Who's who's able to do that? But Jesus, knowing the limitation of our hearts to see the beauty of God's redemptive plan throughout history, goes on to explain that the words he was speaking to them are spirit and life. Spirit and life is the way he describes his own words. He is speaking in the spiritual sense of his body being broken and his blood being poured out so that we can eat the spiritual food and drink from the spiritual drink that he purchased with his death. His death purchased the meal of life for his people. The goodness of God has provided the food and the drink that we desperately need for life and that we cannot procure on our own. The spiritual meal Jesus offers is so much more than the bread and the water that the Israelites ate in the wilderness because they ate and drank but still died in unbelief. Even the tree of life And the water in the Garden of Eden were a shadow of what God would ultimately offer His people. The Garden of Eden offered life-giving fruit from a tree and flowing water at the foot of the tree so that man could go on living, so that they wouldn't die a mortal death. But on a hill called Golgotha, God provided food and drink for his people from another tree. As the fruit hung from the tree of life in the garden, so Jesus hung from the cross. And as a river flowed through the garden, so Jesus' blood flowed through Golgotha, purchasing a meal even greater than the one in the garden. Because this meal provides eternal life that ultimately will be without the possibility of sin or death for his people. It will be impossible for us to sin or die when we are with him. Oh, taste and see the goodness of God. Return often to the foot of the cross, filling your heart and mind with the goodness of God toward his people. And his goodness truly is all around us. Because as you do this, as you are filled with the the meal of his goodness, then your heart and mind will be filled with reverence, awe, And love for this redeeming God. And then obeying Him will no longer be a drag on your life. It will become the joy of your life. Taste and see the goodness of God. Watch it fill you with reverence, awe, and love. So that you can go out and obey Him in your life with joy. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. And thank you for the beauty and the fullness, 
the hope and the joy of your story of redemption, what you are doing in the earth and how you are redeeming a people as a bride for your son, all to your glory. I thank you that you have included us in this joy and in this hope. Lord, I pray that if anyone sitting here today does not have this hope, if anyone sitting here today has not tasted and seen the goodness of God, that you would soften their hearts today so that they can actually see, so that they can feel, and so that they can rejoice in the God who saves their Creator God. Lord, I pray that you would bless now our time of communion, or remembrance as we come to the Lord's table. I pray, Father, that as we do this, that we would rejoice once again and remember Christ's sacrifice for us and that we would examine our own hearts to make sure that we are in the faith and that we are truly living as we're about to testify as those who have been redeemed, those who have been purchased, those who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Uh, Thank you, Lord, for your great mercy and grace. Bless us now as we take of the table. Amen. Amen.